All right, so this morning, I'm going to be preaching to you, with you uh, and looking at Christian freedom and being a good citizen and how those things relate to each other. And I want to ask you to bear with me because what I'd like to do this week is speak about some of the, the theology that we've been looking at um, from Peter, and I'm going to connect it into Romans 13 as well this morning to compare those two portions and to try and understand, to remember this context of this letter in Peter is a very practical thing of how we can learn to live well when things are difficult. And this letter speaks powerfully into our lives right now. And uh, why I'm asking you to bear with me is because uh, it's, it's a contentious thing to speak about what it means to be a good citizen, particularly in our political climate right now. How do we respond to all of the things? So I'd like to do it in two chunks. So I'd like to speak about the theology this week. And next week, I'd like to speak about, in particular... The practical application, because the Bible speaks directly into a number of things, but it doesn't speak directly into other things. And between those two things is a gap. And how do we get from here to there? How do we navigate between those two things? And particularly what I'd like to look at next week is how do we get on with people in the church that don't agree with us politically? That's an interesting thought, isn't it? How do we get on with each other when we don't agree politically? What do we do? How do we respond? So I can't speak about that today, but that's what I'd like to speak about next week. So if you've got some questions out of what I shared this morning, please feel free to email me this week. But just to set the scene, last week Michael Hunter had a look at 1 Peter 2 verse 13, and he did an amazing job in tackling this portion, which as I've said already is especially contentious in our current political climate. And he called his message, the gospel is for everyone. And uh, what I would like to do is try and connect in with some comments, just three basic comments out of that same portion this morning. And then have a look at Romans 13. Does Peter contradict Paul? Does Paul, did Paul and Peter agree? I mean, they were the founding apostles of the early church. So it'd be good to understand if they agree with each other or if they don't and how, how, what we can learn from Romans 13. And so that's the context of what I would like to speak about this morning. I'd like to start by looking at the translations of these verses. So if you go to uh, 1 Peter 2, please have a look at verse 13. Because the NRV, New International Version, translates it like this. I think we've got it up. Uh, yeah, thanks, um, Joseph. It says, verse 13, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. That's the NIV. The ESV says more or less the same thing. It's slightly different. It just says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And it carries on, whether it's to be the emperor supreme or to governor sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, it's very interesting to me because when you look at these portions, they really do transfer, uh, to relate these verses to refer to human government and to institutions exclusively. And it is true that Peter is speaking here about the emperor and officials that have been sent on his behalf. So they, he is speaking about social government. He is speaking about that kind of order. But it's very interesting to me because the original Greek does not really mention institutions. The Greek says this, submit yourselves to every human creature. 
submit yourself to every human creature. You see, I think that's a very, very important point to stress at the beginning as Peter talks about what it means to work with government and to work with local authority and to work with authority in local churches. You see, submission, when we hear that word, something, because we're kind of rebellious and fallen by nature, when you hear the word submit, something inside of you goes like, I'm not going to submit. No one's going to tell me what to do. And yet, there was a very key thing that I learned as a young man that someone shared with me, which has really helped me in my life. Submission is simply this. Submission is learning to play on a team. If you, in your marriage, if you are not mutually submitted to each other, the marriage doesn't work. If one of the partners is always saying, I'm going to do my own thing. I don't care what you think. I'm going to do my own thing. If the husband or the wife does that, the marriage is not happy. It doesn't work. There's a mutual submission that has to take place. And there's a humility that is taken as given. If you always want your, your, your opinion to be the right opinion, it's going to battle because there's no humility in that. Humility is saying, actually, I don't know everything. And there are perhaps other people in the world that know better than me about this particular thing. And so I choose to work with them to get the job done. Now, for me, if, uh, the, the best illustration I can think of is a sports team. Because if you think of football or rugby or any sports team, every person on that team is asked to play excellently in their position. So if you are a forward, if you're the striker, your job is to score goals. If you are the goalie, your job is to protect the goals. If you're in the midfield, your job is to get the ball and distribute it as best as you can to the other players so that you can win the game. No one's asking you not to do your job well. They're saying, uh, the coach is saying, actually, I want you to be the best that you can be in your given position, but here's the deal. The coach says what the strategy is to play the game. And good teams are teams that have helped to learn what it means to work as a team player, to submit your particular thing to the whole strategy so that the game can be won. That's how good marriage works. That's how good church works. And what Peter and Paul will say to us later is this is how it works to ensure there's good government. We have to learn to work as team players. All right? And I want to say that as a basis for the, using the word submission. So Peter starts by saying, willingly submit yourself to every human creature around you. What does that mean? Um, and he goes on then later, interestingly, to speak about people that are not in government. He speaks about husbands and wives, and he speaks about slaves in households. And he, this is his starting point. Submit yourself to every human creature. The first point that Peter is making is this. It's not primarily about an institution or a law. It is primarily about working with other people. That's the bottom line. And so Michael said it last week. He said every human being should be treated with respect. And we have to learn in our lives to recognize the gifts that are on other people and to recognize where God has placed those people and to work with them to get the job done. This is what it's about. It's about getting the job done, all right? And so it's in that context that Peter speaks about government. And he says, and this is where it's really, really difficult, 
and I recognize this is not easy. He says, even when the government is not what you expect it to be, out of reverence for Christ, work with them. That's what he says. He says, uh, don't show respect for the emperor's sake, but for rather show respect for the Lord's sake. This is about order. This is about God's rule. And work as best as you can to see that happen here on earth. So willingly submit yourself, and that includes people with delegated authority. It includes local government. It includes teachers at school. It includes p- the police force. It includes everybody that's got a delegated authority. And we will look at just in a short while at Romans 13. Uh, and Paul actually says these things even more directly than Peter does. They don't disagree with each other. They actually agree. And Paul is much more blunt as Paul is. Just boof, says it. And so we've got to, we've got to kind of understand the context and, and so that we can understand what they really are saying. So Peter's, Peter's language implies two things. And here, the, here it is. That authorities have authority because the authority of God is behind their authority. That's what he says in verse 14. The authorities that... Uh, governors are sent by him, in other words, by God, to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. It's quite clear. He's implying and he's talking about God is behind authority. And the second thing um, Peter points us to, the language that Peter points us to, is that secular rulers have been put in place, or God has allowed them to be in place, for our good. For our good, not for us to do evil, for, uh, for us to do good. Now, I really want to comment on this because there's a context. And for me, context is always king. You're never going to understand the Scripture well unless you understand the context in which the letter was written. Context is king. What is the context? We are talking about the ancient world. We are talking about the Roman authority, the Roman Empire. If you don't know your history, let me just briefly say this. 700 years before Jesus, there was a little town called Rome. And out of that little town things began to develop, and the influence of that town of Rome grew over 700 years to when Jesus was born to an empire. And for another 300 years after Jesus was, uh, died and resurrected, the Roman Empire still existed. It existed for a thousand years. And before the Roman Empire, there was no law. There was no law, none whatsoever. We look back on those days with our liberal 21st century sensibilities and we think, how basic, how brutal, how uncivilized were those Romans. Before the Romans, there was no law. It was simply warring tribes that slaughtered each other. And as the Romans began to conquer, what they did is they brought order. They brought an authority. And yes, we might look back and say it was brutal and it was it was. Uh, you know, repressive, and it was military might, absolutely, it was all of those things. But for the first time in the ancient world, there was some kind of order. And what it enabled to happen was because there was order, you could build roads. And so the Romans started building roads all over the ancient world. And if you go to Turkey or some other places in in modern-day Europe, you can still walk on those roads that they built. And because they were able to build roads, what happened? Trade flourished. And because trade flourished, what did you need? You needed law to, to, to um, say, well, we're going to pay taxes on these goods. So the Romans instituted law that for until 1900 was still the basis of law in Europe. 
Did you know that? Roman law has formed the basis of our law system and still does today by default. The Romans, because there was peace and order, were able to invent concrete. Did you know that? Cement. Who invented cement? The Romans did. (laughs) What did the Romans ever do for us? Your central heating system, who invented that? It's exactly the same principle. The Romans did it 2,000 years ago. Running water. Think we invented that? The Romans did 2,000 years ago. What is my point? My point is because law brings order, society flourishes. Where there is no law, where there is no order, society... I come from a continent where... um, Society is not governed by, often by law and order. And there's a, there's a coup here and there's a coup there. What happens to the countries that suffer those things year after year after year? Do they flourish? No. Do they prosper? No. There is a rule of basic rule of law that enables every other thing to flourish. And that is what Peter and Paul are driving at. They're saying, work with these basic laws as a good citizen because they are good for you. If, they, if you, the society prospers, you too will prosper. And so that's the first thing I want to say. Secondly, I want to say this. If you are playing on the same team, if you are learning to live a life that mutually submits to authority, you do not lose your freedom. Very, very important because as Westerners, we think, oh, well, if we submit, you know, if we submit to the elders in the church or if we submit to the local government, we're going to lose our freedom. No one's going to tell me what to do. You know, I'm free. Well, actually, Peter and Paul don't ever say that. In fact, they say you celebrate your freedom in the context of this community. And uh, this is what it says Um, uh, in verse 16. Peter says this, live as free men. He's just spent all this time saying submit to authority and be a team player and work with, with, um, work with each other. And then he goes on and says, live as free men. So in that context of submitted community, live as free men, yet without using your freedom as a pretext for evil, but live as servants of God. So I put it to you that Peter doesn't think you're going to lose your freedom. Paul doesn't think you're going to lose your freedom. And Jesus doesn't think you're going to lose your freedom if you learn to work with other people and you submit your life so the whole thing succeeds. All three of them don't think you're going to lose your freedom. Peter says, live as a free man or free woman. And that's the key point that I want to make this morning out of this portion is that Christian freedom is not primarily about obeying law and authority. Christian freedom is primarily about being at ease with who you are and the person that God has made you to be, being at ease with the gifts that you have, and learning to enjoy the presence of God in your life. And because you're secure in who you are and who God has made you to be, you can freely work with other people who have different gifts from you. That's what true Christian freedom is about. That's what it's about. That's what it means to be free. And that's why I say to you that Peter and Paul can both say, You can still be free, and even when the emperor is wicked like Nero, you can still be free in that community. And that's why I say to you, regardless of the government that we have, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, we can still be free. Because Christ has transformed us on the inside, and we can live as free men 
and we can live free as free women. Do you think uh, that the Christians that are at this point living in China are less free than you and I are? They have the same freedom in Christ that you and I have. But what they don't have is Western democratic liberal freedom. And we make Western democratic liberal freedom the absolute God. And it's not the same as the gospel. It's not. There's a freedom on the inside of us that comes by the power of the Holy Spirit because we are saved and forgiven and set free and loved and transformed that we can enjoy regardless of whatever the governmental system is over us. Is democracy better than uh, fascism? Absolutely. Is democracy better than communism and repression? Absolutely. Of course it is. Absolutely it is. And we can en more enjoy Christian freedom in that context. So I'm not saying we don't need democracy, but it's not the God. You know, sometimes I think people think that, particularly my American friends, they think the American Constitution is the same thing as the gospel. No, it's not. I respectfully say that it's not. It's not nearly the gospel. It's a good system, but it's not the gospel. And yet we kind of make these things equal. No, we have a freedom in Christ that has nothing to do with government, with how we are ruled, and we need to realize that as Christian people. And so this is what Peter is driving at, that Jesus has washed away our sins. We are forgiven day by day, moment by moment. Our God is not a petty God of rules and regulations. He says his burden is light, his yoke is easy. And Peter reminds us of that in verse 16. Whatever system of government you're under, live as free men and women without using your freedom as a license for evil, but live as a servant of what is good. And so the implication is, of course, there are things that are sin for us, and we don't use our freedom to indulge those things or to cover up anything that is a bad freedom. And thirdly, Peter makes this point. He makes this point that Christian freedom is really a happy behavior towards everyone, all people. That's what Christian freedom is. So in verse 17, he makes it absolutely plain. He just says, honor all men, all women, every person. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Even those you don't like, even those that you don't agree with. You see, if you're truly free on the inside, if you're truly free by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the blood of Jesus, you are free to honor everyone, all people, including people you don't like <laughs> and people who see the world very different to you do. Jesus made this plain. And I go to him as my ex exhibit A. Jesus made it plain. He said it so clearly. So basically, Luke 6, 27, those of you that are listening, those of you that are listening, I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who mistreat you, who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who do you dishonor. I mean, it's, it's plain. It's just clear. And what about uh, Luke, Matthew 5, 43? Same. You've heard it, say, it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you might be children of your Father in heaven. In other words, and this is where it gets difficult, when we, when we don't feel people deserve respect, 
<laughs> and that's what I want to look at next week. Because I said there's sometimes a gap between the, 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 uh, the theology and the practice. And how do we navigate the, that distance? Well, I've got some, some thoughts for you this morning. But, but what Peter is saying here is that every human creature is made by God, whether you like them or you don't like them, whether you agree with them or you don't agree with them, and they deserve respect as a human being. That's the baseline for all of us. We respect every human being. We respect every person on the face of the planet because they are made in the image of God and we honor them as his creation, right? And so that's why Peter uses this word, human creature, in verse 13. And freedom, I want to kind of draw this to the section to a close by saying this. Freedom is love within fellowship. Freedom is only freedom within fellowship. In other words, there's no freedom unless there are other people around you. How many of you discovered in COVID that we've been through the last two years that isolation is bondage? How many of you felt free when you couldn't see anyone? Did you really feel free? Did you really feel, oh, this is the freedom that I've been longing for? Just me, myself, and I doing whatever we like. Don't need other people. How many of you felt like that genuinely? Not one of us felt like that. What did we feel like? I need other people. We are wired. We are wired for a relationship. Of course, we need each other. And the biblical teaching is that you are truly free in a community that loves each other and recognizes who you, for, who you, you for who you are and recognizes other people for who they are. And we submit to each other mutually and we get on for the sake of the community thriving. That is freedom. That's true freedom. All right. And so COVID certainly taught us that. There's no freedom unless there's community. There's no love. There's no freedom unless there's love. And true freedom starts with a love for Jesus, a love for God the Father, and then a love for each other that is worked out practically in what we do. And so I want to say to you that true Christian freedom also involves courteously and fearlessly honoring authority in our lives. And we will look at it next week when we don't agree with authority. How do we handle that? So let me go to then on this point to um, Romans 13. As I said, I would just compare these two. So Romans 13 says this, Paul writing, and it's interesting to me that Paul is writing these comments. Also, the context, remember I said context is king. What is Romans 12? Romans 12 is the context for Romans 13. Romans 12 says, offer up yourself a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can live well here on the earth. That's what it says. And Romans 13 is in that context. And again, he's Peter, uh, Paul is now saying, this is how you live well as a Christian, with a transformed mind and not conforming to the world. This is how you live well, and this is how you work with local authorities and with government. It says here, let every person be subject to government authorities. Wow. Really, Paul? Let every person be subject to governing authorities? Okay. And remember, Nero is still the emperor when Paul's writing this. That wicked man who slaughtered Christians, persecuted them. Really, Paul? There's no authority except from God. And those who exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, he who resists authority 
resists what God has appointed. My, my, my. That's quite a powerful thought, isn't it? Resisting authority is resisting God. That's what he's saying quite plainly. Those that resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to, do, to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of him as an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for his God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God to execute his wrath on the wrongdoing, on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of your conscience. For the same reason, you are to pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay all of them their dues, their taxes, honor the uh, tax to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. I mean, the context is quite clear, absolutely clear. We are called to work with authority. So now I want to tell you a story because some of you have heard this, some of you haven't heard this. When I was a young man in South Africa where I grew up, Military service was compulsory. You had to go to the army. And um, you had to be prepared to go into the townships, which were black communities, and to take up arms and be like a law enforcement person on behalf of the government. So I, I said I wouldn't do it. I said, I wouldn't take up arms. I wouldn't go and do that. I didn't feel that was just. I didn't feel it was right. I didn't feel like it was God would want me to do that, which had implications for my life and consequences for my life, which I had to work through as a young person. I was 24 when I, just, when I did that, 24. So I know what it means to disobey authority, okay? <laughs> it's part of my life story. I didn't choose to do something because I didn't feel it was just. And when I went, I had to appear before a tribunal, all these guys in military uniform, generals, and they quoted Romans 13 to me. They quoted Romans 13. And so I had to kind of try and justify my position in the light of Romans 13. So I'm not saying to you that because the Bible teaches submission to authority, that submission to authority is absolutely unconditional and absolute. I'm not saying that. There are qualifications. And here are some qualifications that I want to give you. The, 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 the tone of Peter and Paul is this. Both of them agree on this. Be a good citizen. That's what their bottom line is. Be a good citizen. Cooperate. Do the best that you can to work with government. And it, it can't be more clear. I mean, I've, I've made it quite plain from, from the Scripture. They both say the same thing. For every believer, Paul and Peter and Jesus, I believe, would say, be a good citizen as best as you can. Obey those in power in the land. Pay your taxes. Get on and help society prosper and be a good place to live. Help St. Albans to be a good place to live by being a good citizen. Right? That's the bottom line. And here are the two clarifications I want to make. First of all, spiritual relationships don't overthrow natural relationships. Can I put it plainly? Christians do not have the option of saying, I will not obey the law because the government is not Christian. See, this is the great problem in America, isn't it, right now? Where authority in the church is seen as equal to authority. The, the state and the church must be separate. 
Must be separate. You can't say, well, if uh, all the elected officials are Christians, I'll obey. And if they're not Christians, I won't obey. That's not an option for us publicly. Okay, you can't do that. It's quite clear. Law is given so that society can prosper. Secondly, being a, a good citizen, I've mentioned it already, is not absolute and unconditional. Here are some exceptions that I want to give you this morning. Um, first is this. First condition. Christians do not need to obey the state when it opposes the preaching of the gospel. All right? Acts 4. Acts 5, verse 28 and 29. I'll just read the Acts 4 uh, portion. So this is, again, Peter and uh, the disciples. They called before the Sanhedrin, Peter and John. And it says, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you or not, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, we're not going to do this. You're saying we can't speak about Jesus? Absolutely, we're going to speak about Jesus. And when they further um, threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all the men praised God for what had happened. So he has a, a basic kind of condition. The church shouldn't be saying what happens in, in, in church life. At the state, sorry, shouldn't be saying what happens in church life. We are not subject, we are, uh, the ultimate authority in church is to God as our Father. That's why I could get up in front of the tribunal and say, I won't do this because there's a high authority over my life uh, that is above the law of this land, and that is the law of Jesus. And the law of Jesus says I should treat men, all, all men equally in every way. And on that basis, I override for my life and say I choose not to obey. And then, once you've done that, you have to suck it up. You have, to, you have to bear the penalty of your decision. So the penalty for me, there was implications for my life for, for two years and what I had to do. Some guys went to prison. They were happy to go to prison because that was, for them, the most important thing was to be true to God's Word. Do you hear me, what I'm saying? So it doesn't mean that when we say this, we're kind of like, oh, well, we don't want any consequence. No, you make the decision, you live with the consequence. You make your decision before God. And then you will live it out in your life. Secondly, Christians can disobey the state when it forbids justice and mercy. When it forbids justice and mercy. The story of the Magi is very uh, clear to me as we, um, as we come up to Christmas now, isn't it? Uh, wonderful to celebrate. Yeah, Christmas. We're going to buy a big Christmas tree. We're going to decorate this place. We haven't been able to do it for two years now. It's going to be such fun. All right, so Matthew 2.12. Uh, remember, Herod wants to kill all the, the, the babies, all the baby boys. And so he says to every child under two must be killed. And it says this uh, in Matthew 2.12, The Magi being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. They disobeyed. The law was passed. Nope. Not going to do that. Thanks. Why? This is not just. Not the mercy of God in here. This involves killing someone. I'm not going to obey that. What about uh, Exodus 1.15, which also suggests that here. The king of Egypt said to all the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Chipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwives for the Hebrew woman and you see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. If it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let every male child live. So you see the implications now for us. What about abortion? 
What about social justice in our context? What, who are we going to obey? The law? We're going to obey God. Third, we can disobey the state when it, com- when it uh, insists that we sin. When we do something that we know is sin. And here, again, is the example is Jesus. And if you want, I don't have time, but if you want to read for yourself, look at um, Luke 23, verse 6 to 12, Mark 15, the first five verses, John 19, verse 13 to 16. In all these contexts, there are incidents where Jesus is brought before civil authorities, instruct him to speak and to say and to defend himself, and he refuses. He says nothing. He will not. In other words, I am not subject to what you're saying right now. I am following my Father in heaven. Were there consequences for him? Yes, there were. What was the consequence for Jesus? He was killed. Am I saying this is easy? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not saying it's easy at all. I'm saying that there's a price to be a Christian, to truly follow Jesus, and sometimes you have to make a stand. And say, on this thing, I choose Jesus, not the law. Um, What about this one? They brought, uh, the Pharisees brought a man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made clay and opened his eyes. The Pharisees asked him again how he'd received his sight. And he said, he put clay in my eyes and I washed and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man, Jesus, is not from God, nor does he keep the Sabbath. He's breaking the rules, this Jesus fellow. How rude of him to to heal someone on the Sabbath. You don't heal anyone on the Sabbath. That's basically what they're saying, aren't they? And uh, how how, how can a man who's a sinner do these signs? And there was division amongst them. So Jesus very clearly didn't always obey the authority over him when he was doing the will. Of his father. And Peter is an, another example, and I'm nearly finished. So, and then we can go and have some coffee. I, I hope you'll still love me after this and you'll give me a chance next week to kind of add some other stuff, all right? Because we must speak about these things. What happens when the Bible doesn't speak directly and people in the same church disagree? How do we get on with each other? Very important question. Look at that next week, all right? But what about Peter? He, he also didn't he refuse to obey the civic authorities on some occasions. Why do I say that? Well, Acts 4, Acts 5, uh, verse 29. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in the name of Jesus. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood, Jesus' blood, upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. Can't do it. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, and God has exalted him at his right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. What about Paul? Last example. He was also not submissive in Acts 16, 11. And uh, you can read it for yourself. I don't have time now. From uh, verse 11 to verse 40, it's the story of the conversion of Lydia. It's the story of um, this, the slave girl who's a fortune teller, and she's making money for her, her, um, her, her slave owners by telling people's fortunes. And um, Peter dis, uh, Paul disregards that, prays for the woman. She's set free from demons. And the basic story is that um, Paul and Silas land up in jail for that act because the, 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 the owners of the woman are so hacked off. 
You know, their source of income is gone. <laughs> so, so they get to the authorities to throw Peter and uh, Silas in jail. And you know the story. What does it say? It says about midnight they were um, singing songs of praise and an angel came, doors opened, and they were miraculously set free. So, again, I just want to say, there, were, there, there was a consequence for them disobeying, but they chose God and His way above the consequence. They were, they were thrown in jail, but God miraculously, miraculously got them out of jail. And so, in summary, we are instructed as Christians through the Scripture to be good citizens in general, to cooperate with authority as we can, and to make society function well. There are exceptions to this. It's not absolute un, uh, obedience, blind obedience. And next week, we are going to have a look at some of the practical things. Well, how do we handle climate change? How do we handle Black Lives Matter? How do we handle all these things, vaccinations, not vaccinations, all these things where people disagree in the church? How do we handle it, and how do we love each other and continue to love each other because we are one in Christ? Amen. You should say amen to that because that's the big deal. We are one in Christ above all of these things. Yeah? We're going to look at that next week.